You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. episode of Digital Noise, where we will be discussing some of the latest Blu-rays and DVDs, as is our want. That is kind of what we do. And joining me this week, for the second time on the show, is John Golson. Hey, John. Hello, Chris. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. We had an interesting mix of movies to talk about this week, didn't we? Yeah. There was, uh, there were some, all, all kinds of stuff. I would say <laughs> uh, much stronger films across the board than the last time I was on the show. There's definitely... Uh, two in particular on here that I had never seen that are considered to be, you know, classics of a sort that I'm really glad now are in my in my history of having seen. I, one of them in particular I'm probably going to rewatch relatively soon. Tom Cruise's The Mummy. Yes, Tom Cruise's The Mummy, which I guess, you know what, let's just start with Tom Cruise's The Mummy, which is not the film I will be rewatching soon, although it's one of those... I kind of asked for the Blu-ray for this after seeing the theater, mainly because if they do actually make the next Universal horror movie in the shared universe, I want to have this copy so we can do like a funny commentary mocking track for mm. it. Because this is, it's not like the worst thing we've ever seen, right? It's, it's watchable. It's watchable. It's not good, but it's, it's watchable. It's not good. And it's not good in such lazy, troubling ways. Yeah. Where you're like, wow, look at this budget you've got of this thing. Look at this, like, megastar who's incredibly charismatic. You have in the lead that they don't let do any of the things that we like to see Tom Cruise do in movies. Well, it's also the first time that I felt like he was cast uh, against his age. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that character works to be as old as Tom Cruise is, where he's like a young, fresh recruit in the military who's also kind of like scamming on the side, and his best friend is like in his late twenties, early thirties, and he's like a charming rogue. and And Tom Cruise in this movie looks like he's in his fifties. Yeah, like his 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 age has caught up with him, and that's that's fine. That's what happens to people. It was only a matter that, of time. That also means you can't play thirty anymore. Mm-hmm. And I almost felt like the movie would have just improved significantly if they just switched roles. If it was Jake Johnson in the lead, it becomes like a different movie. He's certainly not miscast in that way. That's true. Um, but yeah, I felt like the, I felt like this was the first Tom Cruise film I'd ever seen where the casting of Tom Cruise actively worked against the movie. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. Um, and once again, I, like I said, I think that Tom Cruise being in it comes packaged with certain expectations, mm-hmm. and this felt like the sort of movie that would live up to those expectations. But honestly, we're not really sure what is like. Like, we don't really know much about him, except that he doesn't seem like he's a terribly nice guy. He's kind of a thief, really. Um, He doesn't really have much charisma at all. Like, he's certainly not funny. Um, And when he gets into an action situation, he's not really good at that either. So why did you even get Tom Cruise for this part? They make some, like, fatal flaw choices, too, at the beginning of the movie when he is willing to sacrifice the lives of an entire village of people to get his hands on an artifact. Right. It becomes really, even if it's subconscious, it becomes difficult to align yourself to the hero uh, when you see that that they don't really care about brown people, like, immediately off the bat. And, you know, as much as I'm not the world's biggest fan of the, you know, the Brendan Fraser mummy films, they're they're whatever. They're all right. You know, I mean... uh, but I was craving some tongue-in-cheek goofiness watching this. I was like, come on, guys. I mean, this isn't even... It's called The Mummy. It's based on one of the like the original Universal horror films. And supposedly this is a horror franchise. There ain't no horror in this thing. It's just a mediocre action film. You know? Yeah, it, it, it cribs some little things. Like, the mummies in this sort of look like Walking Dead zombies. Mm-hmm. And there's like... I don't know if they thought people had just forgotten, but to borrow so liberally from American Werewolf by having his friend who was killed like appear to him and give him advice. I know, which I'm like, oh, God, you did not do that. Yeah, it was so strange. So even the little things that haven't been in a mummy movie before were sort of cribbed from other better movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's, it's also weird to see that this is like, you know, you talked about saving it for when they roll out further Dark Universe films. And some of the critical reception apparently has called that into question where they're not sure if this will be 
the, the first of the Dark Universe films. But they already did that once already. Dude, they've done it now four times. Is it four times? They've Van Helsing a... was supposed to kickstart a Universal right. Monster franchise and didn't. The Wolfman was supposed to kickstart a Universal Monster franchise renewal and didn't. <sighs> Dracula Untold was supposed to. And now this was supposed to. And they keep going up to bat trying to trying to launch these the, the Universal Monsters as a viable blockbuster franchise. And they and they keep tripping every single time out the gate. I think part of it is because they keep being determined they have to be these big blockbuster type yeah. affairs. And I just go, why don't you, you know, license this out to Blumhouse and see what he could create for twenty million dollars? Yeah, they're all big action movies. Every single, even though the tone is different on all four of them. Yeah, they're very. all big action movies. It's weird to me that the Dracula one is the best of the four, <laughs> and it's not very good, but yeah. it's definitely the best of the four. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what's going on at Universal and why they haven't learned their lesson, but clearly the shows that they have not. And even the, you know, I mean, hell, the thing I enjoyed most in this is the stuff where they're kind of doing the crossover universe stuff, but only because I was so bored with the rest of it. I'm like, I'm much more interested now in Henry Jekyll than I am in whatever the fuck Tom Cruise is doing here. Yeah. <laughs> Who I guess is going to be the mummy when... He crosses over into another film. Yeah, it sort of ends up being a superhero origin story. Yeah. There may have been a better story in this idea of, like, you know, uh, assembling a team of monster hunters versus it being sort of this weird origin story of, like, a superheroic mummy man with immortal powers, which is, which is when all is said and done, is sort of what the movie is. Yeah. I always, if you want this sort of thing, be like, man, I wish this worked. Well, they did a TV show called Penny Dreadful that for the first two seasons did a damn good job of it already. So yeah. watch that. That's yeah. what, you know, I was like, oh, this is exactly what we wanted. It's League of, of Extraordinary Monsters. It's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this is just another mediocre action film, uh, which is a shame. I actually think Annabelle Wallace, or I'm sorry, not Annabelle Wallace, who was horrible and totally flat in her role as the love interest in this film, but Sophia Boutella, who plays the mummy, I think she's a like kind of a charming, very charismatic, good at action actress, And but she's so utterly covered in CG throughout this yeah. whole thing that you're like, okay, well. Yeah, she's an interesting screen presence. Yeah, yeah. She really is. I loved her in The Kingsman. She made such a, a neat I never interest. saw her. <gasps> you gotta watch The yeah, Kingsman. I liked her in uh, the Star Trek movie. Yes, me too. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot, of course, there's a lot of uh, Blu-ray extras on here, including about five minutes of deleted and extended scenes. Uh, a conversation between Cruz and the uh, the director Alex Kurtzman, um, a thing called "Rooted in Reality," which is supposed to like say, "Oh, this is how it ties into the real mummy story." There is no real mummy story. Relax. Um, Life in Zero G. Honestly, the best scene in this whole thing is the plane crash. You guys all saw in the commercial, but you pretty much saw that scene if you saw the trailer. So it's yeah. like, oh, okay then. Uh, look at Sophia Batella's character uh, talking about crews uh, in action scenes, which once again aren't done very well here. A look at the Jekyll and Hyde thing with Russell Crowe. Look at the choreography. Um, a, uh, another look at Tom Cruise's character. A, th- a animated graphic novel that's sort of more the history of, of the Mummy character here, and then an audio commentary with Su- uh, Sophia Batella, Annabella. Annabelle Wallace and Jake Johnston, along with Alex Kurtzman, talking about it in detail. But I'm probably never going to listen to that. I'm thinking. Just saying. Yeah, unless they're unless it's one of those commentaries where they're brutally honest about the reception and what they could have done differently and how it might have been a misstep to launch a universe with it. Unless they're getting uh, that nitty-gritty with it, I don't feel like listening to just them, you know, puff piece. Yeah. Like everybody patting themselves but so on the back. So rarely does that ever happen with us. You always hope that they'll be like for big bombs, they'll be like, okay, we're going to do a humble, but here's yeah. how we fucked up track. You know, for people who are like, oh, this is a part of film history and I'm curious in that. The only one I can even think of is Batman and Robin, which he didn't yeah. do that commentary until 20 years later. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes you have to wait or sometimes a director is just brutally honest. I think one of the one of the best commentary tracks I've ever heard was for the movie The Cell. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Tarsum does on it is talk specifically, and, and, and the movie wasn't, isn't a notorious bomb. It's fairly well received, but it's not, you know, but to hear a director like Tarsum talk so frankly about what he felt like specifically worked and didn't work mm-hmm. while talking on the commentary. And he's brutally honest, like, you know, this doesn't work for me or this was too excessive, but when we shot it, we were trying to do this. And, and he, he, you know, th- that's what I appreciate, you know, is that sort of honesty, not necessarily that, like, 
uh, congratulatory puff piece sort of like. Oh, this person was so great to work with. Yeah, and this yeah. was so great. I loved this. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually curious. I wonder if Jordan Voigt Roberts is, is harsh on himself in the commentary track for Kong Skull Island because he did that video yeah. where he was like so harsh. Even the guys who that's their job to be harsh were like, Jesus Christ, dude. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Nobody criticizes my movie better than me. Uh, all right. So our next cop m- movie makes the mummy look like it was totally worth your time. And that is a, a, a blue, a Lionsgate direct to DVD release called The Hatred. Yeah, um, I was actually kind of enjoying the first 20 minutes or so of this when it was like the prequel part of the movie where it's like, okay, this is in the past and it's a farmhouse and a family and a guy's like the farmer we find out was an ex Nazi, mm-hmm. you know, who went into hiding and started a family here. And he's got this mystical amulet that Hitler had that apparently has hate powers or some shit. Never was entirely clear on no. how this, this, this MacGuffin amulet worked, but it infected him and he ended up murdering his family. Uh, and then it's like, okay, I was like, well, I was kind of into that story, but no, take the sepia filter off, flash to later, and it's a bunch of really banal for yes, like 20-something sorority girls, uh, sorority yeah. girls who are, for reasons I was not entirely clear on are staying in this fixed-up house. Not, I could not, and my my girlfriend watched this with me, and we were having, we had lengthy discussions during the first 45 minutes of this film about exactly what they were doing, because... They talk about tutoring the girl because mm-hmm. they're it's a little babysitting girl. the girl, yeah. and they're staying in her house, but her parents aren't there. Yeah, and it was like we were we were vaguely confused by what the relationship was between the parents, these sorority girls, this little girl. Why were they all staying in her house if they were her tutors? <laughs> and and if this little girl who seemed who they're they're pulling the whole oh she's keyed in to there's something dark that's coming, she's been living in this yeah, house for house. a while. Yeah, it was super... That stuff was super confusing <laughs> to me. did not get it. Did, like, the Nazi ghost decide not to show up until, like, someone who was past puberty was living there? Well, he was waiting for sorority girl. <laughs> I mean, I get it from a horror movie monster mentality, but yeah. still, you know what I mean? Really, you're just like, huh? And the ghost as such appears... As we saw him in the past, he was, a little, you know, they, they ran an orange grove and he would wear this like gas mask and creepy looking outfit to, to, to spray the trees. And so that, of course that's what he looks like. But the whole thing is this whole house is supposed to have been fixed up from top to bottom. And then they go down in the basement and there's just pictures lying around of this guy in the Nazi. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like when they get to the whole decoding the mystery part of the film, I'm like, so they fixed everything in the house, but they didn't bother to go in the basement at any point. No, they they did. They decorated it with Nazi photos. <laughs> they decorated it. That was that was part of their remodel. I mean, they wanted to bring it up to 2017 standards. <laughs> so yeah, just Nazi paraphernalia everywhere. Right. I I admit there was a point about then. No, I just started laughing while I was watching this. I was going, "Come on, guys, seriously? I mean, it's not like this thing had zero budget. You can tell it's kind of slickly shot. Yeah, it was it was kind of you know? slick. I, I felt, and that was the part that surprised me the most. I think coming off of like. Uh, Charlotte from the last time I was <laughs> on the show, I expected something that was way more DIY and low budget. Yeah. Um, but it's it's all, other than the like kind of clunky story pieces that don't sort of fit together, it's all around sort of, it's got a polish to it. it it's very much like, uh, you know, if I were eight years old and having a slumber party, I think it would have satisfied me, but I'm not eight years old having a slumber party. Right. When we were eight years old at slumber parties, we watched some really terrible movies back then yeah. that we now have nostalgic feelings for while still noting that they are indeed about this horrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I go in like, I've watched Slumber Party Massacre tons of times. Doesn't mean it's a good movie. Just means I saw it when I was like eight years old the first yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Although I will defend to the death Slumber Party Massacre too. Okay. Which is I haven't it. seen either. I haven't seen the Slumber Party Massacre films. <laughs> You're not familiar with that oeuvre. Um, yeah, I, I, the hatred is like one of those uh, not enough effort. It's actually, and it's got a weird mix between like the like I thought the lead actress is actually not too bad yeah, in this, but everybody else is really looks like they're barely they barely even qualify as actors. Yeah, including I, I the, the little girl was. I thought the little girl was good. Yeah, she was funny. And the guy pl- when we saw in the prequel, the guy playing the dad and the family. I was Andrew like, Andrew oh. the Wishmaster himself. Uh, is that who that is? That is who okay. that is? And then Casey Sizemeco, who I love it when the size. I uh, know uh, it's uh, not Casey because Casey's the boy. Uh, Nina Seismeco. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they're brother and sister, and I love it when one of them shows up in a movie. I don't know what it is about the two of them. He was in 3 O'Clock High. He played the lead in 3 O'Clock High. Oh, yeah. His sister in the 90s was always cast as the hot girl. Mm-hmm. She's the dingy uh, blonde in Airheads, if you remember the movie Airheads. It's been a long time, but yeah. yeah. Uh, if you looked up pictures from her from the 90s, you might remember her, because she was sort of a character actress that would pop up and stuff as sort of like a, uh, right. a bimbo-type character. But I... I've always liked them as as actors, and so to see her at the beginning as the mom, I was like, "Oh, I know I her. Seen her in forever." Yeah, she was in that the was artist. Nice. Yeah, I, I forgot about that. Yeah, I'm like, once I looked at, her, I was like, "Oh yeah, I've seen her in lots of stuff. She's in the American President and Suicide Kings." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, either way, I don't think that makes us worth. I can't recommend this movie. I mean, come on. Like, I mean, desperation. If you're just like, I have seen literally every other horror movie that is available to me at this point, and someone hands you a copy of The Hatred, then. Go for it. Here's what I think about the hatred because I because because I did expect to hate it <laughs> and and I didn't give it I, I filled out my little letterbox thing and I was like I can't give it one star because there are truly one star movies so I gave it like two stars yeah but in regards to it versus the mummy and the mummy trying to hit a target and hatred trying to hit a target I think hatred comes closer to what it's attempting to do <laughs> that's true than what the mummy does that is accurate so. I, that's the most positive thing I can say about the hatred. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's move on to something that I thought was considerably better. Um, I don't think it's perfect, but uh, and it certainly had mixed reviews, but that is the movie My Cousin Rachel, based upon the same 1951 novel by Daphne du Maurier, who, of course, has been the author of many a short story that was inspired or, or was directly adapted into famous suspense or horror films, including... What's the one? Rebecca, I believe, is one mm-hmm. of the big ones. But, uh, yeah, this one takes Rachel Weiss. God, just always been in love with her. First, since the first time I saw her, I was like, her? She's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever seen, what is it, Agora, I think it's called? No. It's kind of the story of, like, a, a, a feminist ag- atheist and, like, her coming out as one in a period of time when that was not appropriate. No, I think the first thing and, I ever saw her in where I where I noticed her was Chain Reaction, which is not a good movie, right. but that's the first thing where it's I was like, like the mummy is, you know. Yeah. Or the fountain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, she's playing in here this, uh, uh, what is it, post-Victorian, but just barely, uh, piece where uh, it, she's not the main character. You follow this kid, this guy named Philip, who uh, was orphaned as a kid and was adopted by his older cousin, who, as we, that period of him being young doesn't last very long, but see, he's gotten older. He's kind of a, you know, he's not like the highly educated sort, but he's not like dumb either. He's more like, I'm a, I like to work with my hands type of guy. And he loves his cousin. He has become his father as far as he's concerned. And he becomes very, con- very concerned when his cousin goes away and starts writing back about this wonderful woman that he's met and that he's so in love with her. And then mysteriously, he passes away suddenly. And there's an, in, in, in his writing, there's insinuations that it has something to do with her. Well, uh, Philip is pissed and like with a righteous anger and wants revenge against this woman that he's just convinced himself must have had something to do with his death. And said woman, by Rachel Weiss, shows up and just immediately just charms the pants off, off of absolutely everyone, including him, which is probably the most frustrating thing about this film because he goes from so righteously angry to almost instantly like, I will do anything that she wants. Yeah. I'm like, if, if I was like, is the supernatural going to get involved in this? All I did was this? look at her. Yeah. I was like, is she a witch? Is that where we're going? Is this a horror movie? I mean, and it is in a way. It is and it isn't. It's one of those like... It's a lot about whatever you decide actually happened type of films, which I know could be frustrating as well. Like at, towards the end, you're like, well, what do you think she, her motivation really was? I mean, I really enjoyed the perform her performance in this. I thought she got that perfect balance of trying to do that where you never really know how to feel. Is she being, is she malevolent or is, is this more of a sort of like, like a man's point of view looking at, a woman is not giving him exactly what he wants, you know, because she's basically like, yeah, of course I'm attracted to you, but I don't want to fall in love with you. And he's like, that's outrageous. <laughs> in that way, sure. It reminded me of her performance in the shape of things. If you remember mm. the movie, the shape of things, oh, yeah. where she manipulates men, uh, with her, with her charms. Um, yeah, I, I wanted, I, you know, okay. So there's, there's certain movies where we have like these, they're sort of like exercises. You see them a lot in like action films where it's just like, 
some mid-budget action film starring, you know, Liam Neeson or whoever, and it comes out and it satisfies a particular audience and it kind of dies on the vine and, and you won't remember it 10 years later. Somebody will bring it up. And I'm not talking about like Taken. I'm talking about some of the like non-stop that's cut. Yeah. <laughs> after. And to me, this was like the drawing room period piece of those kind of movies where it's like, if you like these sort of like gothic romance films, this is like right in that like mid level where it's, it's well made, but it's not particularly exceptional. Mm -hmm. And if that's what tickles your fancy and that's like, you know, a certain type of genre that you react really strongly to, then you'll like this more than me (laughs) who doesn't re who doesn't necessarily like click with that genre. And it usually takes something that really like, transcends the genre for me to really like get into it and yeah, so not everything can be wuthering this, heights yeah so, so for a lot of this movie i was like please let's, <laughs> let's go let's move this along let's, people. yeah let's pick up the pace let's reveal some more things and and uh it was a, it was a tough watch for me in that way you know because sometimes you just have to power through a movie you've started mm-hmm. it you're committed and it's not even that it's bad it's just you know not every movie is for everybody yeah yeah so I mean, and this is very slowly paced. I mean, it it's one of those films, and I'm going to anger someone out there by comparing it to this, but, you know, it comes at night that, you know, nothing comes at night, but the movie's soundtrack is convinced at every moment it is about to show up. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those films, like, it's like everyone on a technical level is convinced shit is about to fucking burn to the ground, but nothing ever really happens. You know, it's all sort of like, but maybe there was stuff we didn't see or you know, like, what's who should we even be siding with here? And but nothing really happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of frustrating because it feels like it's leading you to like that. It's going to get explosive and it just kind of peters out really with you being left with like, OK, so basically I'm still in the position of not knowing even the tragedy of the finale of the film. Not a not a spoiler, but the the. The tragedy of the finale of the film takes mm-hmm. place off camera. Yeah. So even then, it's not fulfilling in that way. Yeah, and even like it happening in and of itself was kind of like, oh, well, that's not really what I would have... That's how it ends? Yeah. <laughs> I was uh, very confused, but I was so taken with Weiss's performance here that I did enjoy it very much on that level. I just thought she was terrific in this, and she got what she was supposed to do. I'm not sure Sam Clayton, who played Philip, did. I think he was... He was uh, I mean, and maybe that's kind of the point. There's definitely a lot of... like. Uh, uh, feminist ideas at work in this particular telling of this, and he is supposed to be a man-child, but it's just aggravating watching him. You know who I liked watching in this movie? It was it is it Tristram Davies? Is Wellington the uh, the manservant? I believe so. Yeah, this guy looks like a freaking cartoon drawing of an old British person. He has <laughs> these like gigantic triangular eyebrows, and there's a scene where his face fills half the screen in profile, and it looks like rock climbing like you just want to like put on your under armor and like grab a nostril and start scaling his just, face just scale Tristan yeah this guy this guy is like the quintessential like old Englishman uh, and I and I liked looking at him anytime he was on screen you just want to have a cup of tea whenever he's on screen don't yeah. you yeah I mean brought to you by him mm-hmm. <laughs> and him to say something in a very stately voice so your tea. <laughs> He's the, he has the he has a pretty good like funny scene as well, which is the scene where uh, the the main character first arrives and he hasn't seen uh, Rachel, mm-hmm. and he's asking him well, what does she look like, and the guy's just not being responsive, like doesn't know whether she's fat, skinny, young, old, like doesn't know any of that. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is funny, and he's like. He's odd. Your his motivations in the he's more of a character than you'd think by just being the butler. He's always yeah. sort of like you can tell he's feeling like he's trying to get the his master to do the right thing. And yeah. then that moment where he's no longer his master, boy, he turns cold real fast. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, "Well, you fucked up. I don't know what to tell you. Ain't my master no more." Anyway, yeah, there's a certain amount of extras. There's some deleted scenes, some EPK type featurettes. Uh, stuff about the score and audio commentary by uh, Roger Mitchell, who directed it, and the producer Kevin Loader. Which you're, I'm always kind of like, get at least one actor in this, these fucking things, but not in this case. Um, yeah, I think you're right when you said you know that if you already like this kind of thing, 
yeah, this is one we're seeing. You're not going to think it's one of the best ones they've made, but like, if this is not normally the sort of your sort of thing, then no, do not go out of your way to watch my cousin Rachel. All right, so uh, you didn't get a chance to watch this, uh, but I'm going to talk briefly about the second season of Narcos. Still weird to me that they send out blue. They even make Blu-rays of Netflix shows. They never go away, and there's rarely anything really significant in the way of bonus features either. So you're like, so. This is just so I can have it at 1080? I don't know. <laughs> like, uh, But I, I do say I genuinely like the show Narcos a lot, which, of course, follows the story of Pablo Escobar. Um, the first season and the second season are sort of the very much the companion seasons They because they're about him. As everyone knows, spoiler, Pablo Escobar dies before even middle age. <laughs> you know? I mean, he don't, he don't make it to a ripe old age. And the second season concludes the Pablo Escobar story where you're like, wait, there's a third season? Yeah, because the show's called Narcos, not Escobar. Oh. And it already this season spends a lot of time setting up, you know, the fa- the crime families that were moving into power as Escobar was on the run from the law. This whole second season is he's he's totally on the run. You know, he's hiding out and slowly and but surely having more and more taken away from him, losing everyone who was associated with him is, is people going to jail or getting murdered. Um, and it's odd how they want you all. It almost feels like they want you to feel sympathy for the guy, but how could you possibly, <laughs> you know, he's just, he's a, he's a, he's not a psychopath, but he's definitely a sociopath. You know, this guy who's like, I get at the time, like the poor loved him because he was spending hundreds of millions of dollars, like, you know, paying, you know, building people houses, free housing and bringing food to everyone and building parks and stuff. I get it. But there was a point where even everyone pretty much turned against him because he was like, he pretty much murdered hundreds of police officers in one day once, you know, for, for revenge against them trying to catch him. Is that documented in the, in the film? I mean, it, in the, it, in the show. Yes, it is. Uh, and yeah, this is, I mean, it's definitely a really entertaining watch. It's a little distracting when they do the thing. Cause they love to do a thing where they show actual footage of people, like the real people and then go to the actors. And I'm like, okay, that was that pulled me right out of it, you know, because they're on the whole, this is structured as in a straight narrative fiction sort of way. And it definitely takes some license with the story. There's some dramatic exaggeration here as Pablo Escobar's son, who's the only member of the surviving family has come out and said not to defend his dad, but say, boy, you guys really made up a whole bunch of shit. <laughs> Didn't happen. But yeah, uh, this is like, it's it's the end of season two or the end of the Escobar story, but it also I think is kind of essential if you want, were more interested in the you know the chaos that followed his death as the big hole that had to be filled, you know, as everyone fighting and trying to step into it because a good half of the season is about setting up those new characters that are coming in that will be the antagonists or are because I haven't watched it. It's on Netflix now, season three. But yeah, such good performances across the board in this thing. Everybody seems to be moving on to other bigger and better stuff from this. Like the the lead, one of the lead cop characters there, Boyd Holbrook, has been cast in fucking everything right now. And nobody knew who the fuck he was before this. Uh, yeah, in terms of extras, there's a 20-minute uh, de- declassifying Narcos Season 2 where it's the creative staff just talking about how they built, brought structure and, in, in a narrative sense onto uh, the the actual events. There's an audio commentary with uh, one of the directors, executive producer, and actor Wagner Mora, and there's about eight minutes, uh, eight and a half minutes of deleted scenes, which I'm still like, you know, why are you putting this out of Blu-ray? <laughs> but you know, I guess some people were like, I just go to Redbox. I don't, I don't use Netflix. Yeah, yeah, there's some. I guess. All right, so let's move on to another movie we did, in fact, both see. And I, this is, like, my second favorite movie on the list for us this week, probably, of stuff that... Well, at least of stuff that, like, was completely off my radar. Yeah. And that is The Big Knife, directed by Robert Aldrich, who's kind of one of the the masters of film noir, of early film noir. Back in 1955, this surprisingly cast Jack Palance in its lead as a... Very privileged Hollywood actor, and in fact, ninety nine percent of this film is just like almost a play set, a theatrical mm-hmm. set, just of his home. Who is uh, dealing with his wife, who's about to leave him. Uh, he doesn't want her to leave, and 
part of the reason she doesn't want him to renew his contract with kind of a, a huckster producer who wants him to sign like a seven year thing. But what she doesn't realize is that producer, he know, he got some shit on Jack Palance. He, yeah. he knows about some, some stuff he did that he shouldn't have done. And he's torn between just openly dealing with the situation and, and, and therefore not being stuck in a contract with this guy or just going, okay, fine. It's, it's just easier just to go ahead because truly he really does want to get back with his wife, even though he can't seem to stop putting his dick in other actresses, <laughs> which happens almost happens like three times in this movie. But this is like, despite, like I said, being filmed more like a play than anything else, I found this incredibly involving and just a fascinating story and one of my favorite Jack Palance performances. Yeah, it's, it is, uh, to use a cliche critic term, gripping. Mm-hmm. I found it gripping. And it's based on a play. Uh, okay, that makes sense. Which is also why it is so stagey. But there are also very theatrical moments. There were a couple where characters like, come in through the front door which is perpetually open Mm -hmm. make some sort of announcement and then like leave out the front door Um, but so from a stage play standpoint yeah you end up where you really only they they kind of only shoot in two rooms there's a little bit outside the house but mostly it's like two rooms it's like this like side study and like the main sort of living area Um, but the trade-off in that is you get really good dialogue. Like, oh, yeah. really, really good, punchy-as-hell dialogue uh, and and great acting characterization, uh, just absolutely gripping. And it was it was one of those movies where it wasn't on very long before it, it kind of cast its spell, and I was like, this is going to be really good. Yeah. And it was really good. I completely agree. And you have so many good other actors. You're Edie Lapino playing his wife, who's mm-hmm. terrific. And you got to say Rod Steiger playing like the, the slimy Hollywood mogul guy who wants to sign the contract, who's like goes from like the kindly old grandfather type a- attitude towards like to instantly like, oh, you fuck with me, I'll fuck with you. He's a great <laughs> villain in this movie. He's such a good villain. And one of my favorite scenes in this movie, and it'll stay with me is the scene where he assumes Jack Plants is going to beat the shit out of him mm-hmm. and he 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 curls up and Jack Plants just smacks him on the head yeah. just like a light slap <laughs> I love that scene yeah. um he's such a he's such a there there are those big screen villains that it's just like you love them they're so interesting to watch uh, you would never want to meet that person in real life. And Rod Steiger is so good in this. And it's interesting as a film that's unquestionably a film noir, it is questionable until you get about to the halfway point. Cause you're like, how is this film noir? And it's not till you really start realizing the ugly underbelly and how incredibly conflicted and imperfect Jack Palance's character is here. Yeah. that You really start seeing how pertinent that really is. And boy, does this get dark. I mean, like, that last 20 minutes was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, definitely film noir. Yeah. Uh, it's not for anybody who wants an old-school Hollywood happy ending, that's for sure. No, but it is, But it is again, crackling dialogue, fantastic performances across the board, mm-hmm. well worth seeing. Definitely needs to be a film that, that, that deserves some rediscovery because I, I felt like it was not even something I'd heard of. I didn't even, I didn't yeah. know what it was when... When I got the pile of discs, I had not, I had, it wasn't on my radar at all. Yeah. Um, me, me either. And so, and you had recommended it. You were yeah. like, hey, I really like this. You need to check this one out. And, uh, and I feel like it's ripe for rediscovery. I feel like it's one that it's like, yeah, if you are a film buff, it's one you really need to seek out and watch because it's just, it's damn good. And it's Arrow video re-releasing this. has really proven themselves to be pretty good at finding these little hidden gems like this. Uh, it comes with a, a commentary by some film historians. Uh, there is a bit about Saul Bass, an interview with him for 33 minutes, who, of course, is the all-time great title creator. And he's talking about his history of doing that. See, he's probably the greatest title creator there is or was. There's a... a a television promo, which is basically like an old school EPK, and then the original trailer. So it's and it comes with a booklet with essays and stuff. It's not their biggest package ever, but I imagine there's only so much stuff around about this. This is a film that unfortunately kind of slipped between the cracks for a lot of film fans, you know, over the decades. And and like you said, it's it's very much worth I think uh, looking back into and rediscovering. Yeah, it's also it still feels. I mean, short of the fashions and that sort of thing. It's still there's something about the bluntness with which they talk to each other that gives and the and the again the kind of bleakness to it yeah. that makes it feel very modern. 
uh, it doesn't feel like it's from the, the Leave it to Beaver era. Agreed. Uh, all right, so our next one is going into a, like it seems like I try to at least every every show have at least one martial arts or at least like Chinese, Korean, some Eastern film, and I love like the cinema of of Japan and China and Korea and lately Indonesia and Vietnam, and this one is from Hong Kong, and wow, um, okay, so this guy who's kind of come out of nowhere called uh, Yu Song, like he has decided that he's the new Bruce Lee. Like he is pretty much that's his his personal decision as a public persona. I am the new mega badass, and he is all about self promotion, right? And he did a really crappy martial arts movie called The King of the Streets that came out I think last year. I was like, Ugh. I mean, he's all right, but this movie's just bad. And the one thing I'll say about this new movie, Iron Protector, he's pretty much badass as shit in this movie. I'll hand him that. I'm like, damn, you do some crazy fucked up shit during this. There's a scene where he just crashes through the window of a moving car and I was like holy fuck (laughs) they show you several times to be sure you you didn't miss it and see that he actually did that stunt but it's about as ridiculous and dumb a movie as you can ask for you know they kind of go for this like live action anime thing it's like these weird transitions where it's supposed to look sort of like a cartoon but it looks just like a photoshop filter yeah um that you could kind of tell they were going for sort of a comic booky thing, or like the opening scene where it's the little kid with the bow tie and a bowl haircut eating the ice cream that for some reason pees all over him. I was like, uh, what was that? Yeah, um, and it's and, and it sets the tone for how sort of like cartoony and and goofy it it sort of is overall. Yeah, um, kind of a convoluted revenge story, but it boils down to uh, two old friends. Uh, that have that have uh, drifted apart due to some bigger plan of revenge, and the main character wearing these uh, these big iron boots that, of course, uh, you know, and still being able to kick the shit out of people with the boots on, meaning that you know when the boots finally come off, oh, he's got you know the fastest feet in the world. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it's it's you know, and it's got a lot of fight scenes that were that were diverting. I it was diverting. That's about the best I can yeah. say about it. I mean, it, it tries so. to cross the plot you're talking about with almost a remake of the 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 Hong Kong movie The Bodyguard. It's yeah. almost just a straight remake just pfft, splashed together, was smashed together with this other thing. And none of that stuff is interesting outside of, like, what were they thinking moments. Like, my God, it just tries – it wants to be so loud and brash and crazy and it doesn't really succeed. It's just kind of obnoxious. But I did genuinely enjoy several of the fight sequences in here. And I think Yu Song is, is definitely – he's got some charisma. He's a good-looking guy. He's extremely talented at martial arts. And it's just a shame he's not in a better movie. Yeah, <laughs> this is a lot better than his last one, which was so slow. And you're like, oh, for fuck's sakes! Oh, this isn't. Yeah, this isn't slow. I didn't find this one slow. No, it's not slow at all. It's just goofy. It's just yeah, it's absurd. Yeah, like <laughs> it just makes the weirdest. And you're right; it feels more like a. It feels like it's an adaptation of a video game we just never heard of. I, you know, I actually looked up halfway through watching it. I was like, this has got to be based on some manga I've never read, and yeah. I couldn't find out. I I didn't find that there that it was based on any manga, but I, I thought for sure this has got to be based on a comic. Yeah, as far as I know, it is not, but it sure does feel that way. Um, I, I, this is one of those when you want to watch a big, dumb, fun martial arts film, but with when you're only halfway paying attention to it with your friends, like you know, you're inviting friends over for a beer and and punt and and chop sake night. This is this is a movie for that. It's weird. There was, uh, I think it's on IMDb, maybe, but I looked. I was trying to find out if when I was looking to find out if it's based on a manga, mm-hmm. I read a synopsis that. Was it described the plot of the movie, except that it described him as having onset dementia, and I was like, what? I didn't pick up on anything unless they changed something in the translation. Yeah, I picked up on nothing of him having the onset of dementia. Yeah, I thought there's a little bit about him being a country bumpkin and not understanding the way that the city world works. Right, and they and they say that like explicitly in the dialogue that he's from the country. They try so hard um, to play up the fish out of water stuff yeah. in the bodyguard storyline for humor's sake. But then I began to wonder 
are in Chinese, are they saying, like, in Mandarin, are they actually talking about the fact, not that he's a country bumpkin, but that he's losing his money? <laughs> It'd be interesting if they had just totally rejiggered this whole thing for an American audience. Like, yeah, they're not going to connect with that, so we'll just create this other yeah. false narrative. It's really strange. I, I don't know what to tell you. It's um, One of the weirdest things about this, though, is they marketed it saying, no tricks, no wires, all real. And then there's a bonus feature that shows them clearly using wire work, yeah, like you unmistakably. Can't do the, like, Matrix style yeah. fighting where you're running across people's faces. That's physically I, impossible. I know. I'm like, how would you, man? I don't, like. It's like every single thing about this movie is just like about this guy who's got more balls than sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, but it, I did have fun with it. So whatever. Uh, let's move on to Funny Bones. And I've been hearing about this movie for. Forever, mm-hmm. it's one of those ones always been on my list. You know, I want one of these days. I'm going to check that one out, and it's partially, I think, because I have a lot of British friends. Because apparently, England loved this movie. America didn't get it, and maybe it's because I'm American. I didn't get it. <laughs> it didn't work for me. I could see where it was going. I know what it's aiming for. This like kind of like magical and wacky tone that feels false and insincere because. I don't think it ever succeeds at the tone. Mm-hmm. It's it lives and it lives there the whole time, and it's never quite successful at capturing it. So it's like it's like what they're going for is always just out of reach for the entire running time. It's it wants to be both manic and melodramatic, yeah. and it's like the only points that really achieve. Like any sort of level of word that oh that was really interesting or of course Lee Evans who most of us in America like go oh I think I saw him in something once but is a deeply respected comedian funny man overseas and he's really good in moments of this we're like god damn that guy is incredibly talented comedian physical yeah, comedian most most listeners would probably know him from there's something about Mary yes uh, yeah he's the guy that's not Matt Dillon or Ben Stiller <laughs> uh, and he also has a cameo in, in Fifth Element uh, yes but yeah Mouse Trap is or Mouse Hunt with uh, Mouse Hunt with Nathan Lane he co-stars with Nathan Lane in that so that was another one where he was kind of the star of an American film I, I always mix him up with the guy in my head some for some reason who was the you know the 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 character who was their little bitch friend in uh, the Trey Parker Matt oh, Stone yeah, movie? Dean Bacar. Yeah, yeah. I'm always like in my head, always thinking, is that Lee Evans? That's not Lee Evans. Anyway, basic story. This came out in 1995. Uh, Oliver Platt plays the son of Jerry Lewis, or at least the characters they're playing. Who in this case, Jerry Lewis is essentially supposed to be Jerry Lewis. Yeah. And Oliver Platt wants desperately to be a comedian, and he's not good at it. Yeah, and it's again, it's one of those things like talking about the mummy, where the film starts off a certain way, where the own, its own logic works against the film, which is if he's playing the strip and he's able to fill the place, but you're also telling me that he's crappy and nobody laughs at his jokes, and I'm like, I don't understand. How did what's he get there? And the, yeah. you know, I mean, I, the best I could get is they were like, well, he's got the same name as the son of the world's, as they keep saying, the world's most popular comedian, so he got in there by name recognition alone, I assume. But there's also a confusing thing. Where he's all like, well, that's it. I didn't uh, succeed tonight, so I'm going to kill myself in two weeks. And you're like, wait, what? Why? And nothing else that ever happens in the rest of this film plays out in any way that that makes sense to me at all. And there's the whole other storyline with Lee Evans, who ends up having it when basically Oliver Platt goes to Blackpool, England, uh, where he grew up spending summers and finds out that like his his. He's going there to try and buy jokes from people, basically, or at least characters and routines. And he ends up finding out that a group of very old, like classic, uh, classically trained uh, comedians there used to work with his dad. And in fact, he stole all his original material from them that he got famous for. And he's just appalled that his dad was a thief and stole the stuff that made him big. And in fact, finds that he has a real connection to them in a way even past that. And there's this weird storyline that seems apropos of nothing where Lee Evans is in trouble with criminals because he stole these wax eggs that have some sort of like super cocaine or something in it as near as I can tell. Yeah. Like it makes you like feel super young again and be really energized, which just plays out to a joke towards the end with the old guys. 
this thing just goes all over the place. And I couldn't – like outside of a few moments where Lee – there's a great thing where Lee Evans is doing like, oh, well, I'm going to start performing now and he doesn't act where it's all him just sort of mouthing stuff over a preset track of like old radio stuff. Mm-hmm. That's really genuinely super funny I thought. I was like, wow, that guy's really good at, at, at this type of humor. But those are just – they're just moments and they never feel like they gel with anything else that's going on in the film. Yeah. I, I, I don't get it. Um it, the Oliver Reed is in this as well. Uh, uh, Leslie Caron. I, I don't know. Eh, meh. Yeah, it's it's meh. Uh, it's it's probably being released because of uh, you know curiosity about Jerry Lewis's filmography and and it being one that uh, maybe wasn't as readily accessible, especially in you know something being made in the '90s, being one of his later films. Um, so it's a curio in that regard. But again. Jerry Lewis, you're seeing him play himself, and if you're going to see him play himself, King of Comedy is a superior movie to watch oh, him play a version con- of himself. Considerably better. Yeah. yeah. I would recommend that one. All right, so let's move on to the next one that I'm actually, you know, and which is not, uh, I'm actually going to say is, like, would have been my pick of the week, um, because I genuinely enjoyed it, but when it came down to it, the last film we're going to talk about, it, I just can't deny, is the best film we saw this week. But yeah. before we get to that... We're going to talk about the release that they put out of Wonder Woman. And this is not one of those. I know they keep re-releasing the animated one, which is pretty good. Uh, but I think maybe part of it is my expectations were so low after the previous three DCU films that I came out going, Hooray! I didn't despise that! <laughs> you know? I was, like, really charmed by Wonder Woman. I... It got so much stuff right that the previous three films got completely wrong. It had a sense of humor about itself. It had a lightness. And yet, it's not. I would not put it even in the top ten superhero movies ever made, you know? It's not one of the best ones. It's just the best one DC's done in a while. (laughs) Yeah, I maybe had the opposite. I'd had it. I didn't see it till maybe a week after release. So at that point, it had been so hyped up as being absolutely incredible that I felt kind of bad that I was like, it's good. Yeah. Like it's, like, it's as good as most comic book movies are. People coming out and uh, actually saying, it is definitely the best superhero movie ever made. I'm like, mm, I don't... Have you watched a lot of superhero movies? <laughs> like, this isn't even in the same league as The Dark Knight. You know, yeah. this is a okay to pretty good superhero movie that is pleasing on a number of different other levels because, A, we finally get a Wonder Woman movie and it's, hey, it's pretty good. B, we've got a female director to, for big super superhero movie who, you know, does a, a, a really good job with the material. And they didn't fall into any of the traps we were kind of all afraid that a Wonder Woman movie would fall into. The story makes sense. It's a hopeful movie. It's uh, got heart and humor. The other thing I like about Wonder Woman is similar to uh, Christopher Reeve in Superman or Hugh Jackman as Logan in the first X-Men. Is she, she's such an unknown that you can almost imprint onto her. Mm-hmm. Where when you see Hugh Jackman for the first time in X Men in that steel cage, you're like, I'm looking at Wolverine. Yeah. And there's some of that in regards to her where you're just sort of like, she's Wonder Woman. That's yeah. who she is. You never and have any make trouble un- by She'll that. make other movies, and even general public will be like, it's that movie starring Wonder Woman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, you're, you're totally right. Um, I was cynical about her after her role in Batman v Superman, but I think that that was, I just was, people were like, oh, she was one of the best things in it. I was like, really? Because I thought that was kind of gross, those scenes with her in it, actually. Yeah. You're just like, every single outfit she wears is cut down to her navel, and you're just like, what is, oh, God, Zack Snyder, no, you're not allowed to be in charge of Wonder Woman. (laughs) But this really, she's a super positive role model for young girls, you know? I mean, we've got... I mean, unquestionably the best female lead superhero movie we've seen. Yeah. Right? Like, no question. And I'm sure Marvel immediately went, we got to make sure that Captain Marvel is really fucking good (laughs) after seeing this. I'm excited about the prospects of a sequel as well because I feel like sort of... I would say that there's a hesitancy to the screenplay where it's almost... I think it fall. I think it errs on the side of conventional simply because it's like we don't want to mess this up, mm. and so we're going to construct this somewhat conventionally. We hope that there's enough unconventional elements that people will will respond to those, 
but we're going to play it safe in regards to sort of like superhero origin structure, right. and, and it's going to feel very familiar. Um, and I'm hoping that now that they've got you know a $400 million domestic box office under their belt, mm. that they'll have the confidence to go, okay, we don't have to play it as conventional. Let's shake things um, up. Yeah, and, and I'm really, really looking forward to seeing what they do with the character beyond Justice League. Yeah, I'm less interested in Justice League than I am in the next film in this series, yeah. which I guess... They seemed like they were going back and forth on whether it would be a period piece again or it would be modern day. I hope they actually do another period piece. I've heard – I thought I had heard it was a period piece. At one point they were saying it was and then they were saying it wasn't and then they were saying it was again. So I don't know. And they just hired like three new writers or two new writers as well to were write it co- – to go over the script with Patty Jenkins who is, was writing it with Jeff Johns. So yeah. I mean at this point that means there's more changes. So who knows? Uh, I know they're really determined to get it right. Now, a lot of you guys have already seen this. We, of course, did a whole theatrical review of this as well that you can listen to on the site. Uh, but you're like, well, is this worth owning on Blu-ray? And I will give it a yes. I absolutely feel that it is. First off, this is just a really gorgeously shot movie. There's so much beautiful stuff in here. I mean, like like just in Themyscira alone is just so nice. And if you have a really good television, what? No, nothing. Did I say it wrong? No, no, no. You didn't. I, I was reminded of something. What? I was reminded of my favorite... Easter egg moment in this film. Oh, what was that? Which is, uh, so I'm not saying that this is the case, okay? <laughs> okay. I'm not saying that this is the reality. But anybody that knows Mr. Miracle mm-hmm. knows that he took the name and the escape artist job from a, another man that took that had, was named Mr. Miracle, mm-hmm. Thaddeus Brown, who was a world-famous escape artist. There's a weird aside when she first gets to England where... There's, it's not necessarily a focus on him, but she specifically walks past an escape artist who's like trying to get people to come watch him. That couldn't have been an accident. And I was like, is that Thaddeus Brown? <laughs> but that's because I'm a nerd. And I was like, are they, is that, was that for me? Or was that. I don't know. I, I love that we are now we are living in the world that nerds made right now, and and movies, the biggest movies that come out are filled with really obscure little references like that. Just for those of us who are like, yes, I have read comics from the nineteen forties and fifties. I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt with an aside about Mister Miracle, but uh, but yes, back to the special feature. Sorry, I, I just I was reminded of it, and I had a big old smile on my face. I think the main thing that people were like going, oh, what is that going to be like? Is there's a whole film sequence specifically made for the Blu-ray that takes place after Wonder Woman with the character of Etta Candy gathered together with the rest of the team that went on the World War Two or World War World War One mission and she's like well we have a new mission and 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 they're like well where's Diana and it's like well she's she can't be here but I'm I'm in charge and they're like woman can't be in charge like well Diana was in charge like well she's tall there's a lot of jokes and then there's her you remember that Diana kicked the shit out of the one guy in the bar who was coming for the other one of her team members. Yeah. Well, Etta does the exact same thing to the exact same guy. She takes him out, and everyone in the bar is like, oh, he got his ass kicked by two different ladies. And it's like, okay, it's cute. And it's mainly there so they can see her opening up the book and of like notes from the government of what they have to do, and you can see it's clearly a picture of a mother box. And you're like, oh, okay. okay. So it ties into... Was that supposed to be a post credit scene? And they and they dropped it. I don't know. Maybe didn't say. I I didn't listen to uh, to see. I don't think there was a separate commentary for it. Interesting. But, but there's a lot of like you know the way they do where there's like the they break up the documentary making of into a ton of uh, of connected featurettes so you can just watch it straight through or you can pull one out separately. They try and take every little aspect and examine it. And honestly, Patty Jenkins, who talks through a lot of this, is incredibly engaging uh, and is just fun to listen to does a wonderful job showing how excited she she was to be on this thing and, and really enjoyed doing it. There's a little bit here where they look at the legend of Wonder Woman and the history of her and how she works w- with the Trinity, you know, Batman and Superman. Obviously, that's coming up shortly. Uh, and uh, a thing where where they... They look talk to a bunch of award-winning poets, and they said inspiring public figures. I did not get to watch this one, uh, where they talk about the how she was very impactful and important to them personally. There's a few extended scenes, nothing that was really added anything, basically a, an extra slight gag or two, but nothing essential. I will really recommend the blooper reel on this one because I'll tell you what. 
Uh, Gal Gadot looks like she is just a ton of fun to be on set with. She's a, she's a big laugher and she's like one of those people. She just looks like you're like, this is exactly what I want her to be like, where she's like, they mess up and she hugs whoever she's with type of thing. And she's like, just, just, just like they all, they're all just clearly having a great time on set. Everyone, but the guy who plays the, played the bad guy who there's a scene where she's laughing. She's like, Oh, and he's like, never breaks character. And you're like, Oh, relax, dude. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, um, but yeah, I I totally think this is worth owning. If you're if you're a fan of the movie, it is completely worth owning a copy of it, and it will indeed look beautiful on your big television set. Our last film this week is the one that I think we're both picking as our pick of the week here, which is uh, a 1969 Sidney Pollock film called "They Shoot Horses, Don't They?" Awkward title, to be sure. One of the reasons I probably never got around to it because I was like, "What the hell is that even about?" Yeah. <laughs> and it's not about anything you would possibly imagine if all you had heard was the title. Yeah. It was uh <laughs> it was great. Yeah. It's one of those talk about one that it doesn't take long before you're like, whoa. It casts its spell over you and you're like, Yeah, I'm in it for the long haul on this one. I gotta see where this is gonna go. In fact, I had to pause this movie at one point because I'm like, this couldn't possibly have been real, right? This type of thing that's happening. It's like it sure was. Yeah, I think it's a title from a memoir about a guy who worked as a bouncer at these events. Well, the events we're talking about in question are they used to have these dance marathons. And most of us think of a dance marathon, we think of those things that went on for like maybe five or six hours type things and people would drop out. You know, I mean, they still do that kind of thing. No. Back in the, the day, back in the Depression, they would do ones that went on for months where, yeah, there would be breaks, but not for very long. And people, they would do horrible things to them during it. Like suddenly go, okay, now everyone has to run as fast as they can around a track. And the last three people out are, you know, I mean, dangerous for your health stuff. But people were so desperate that they were like, well, I don't see another way out, but to try, we've got to try to win. And this follows as our lead characters here, uh, Jane Fonda, who's so amazing in this movie, um, who is... Dancing with a guy who just kind of wandered in, yeah, <laughs> you know, because her partner is disqualified because he's sick, and so this guy, uh, uh, oh god, goodness, what's his name? Uh, Michael uh, Sarazen, the actor, is playing this guy, Robert. Right when when it starts, more or less, he's he, they're already the thing's kind of going on. Gig Young plays the cynical manipulative uh, MC for the whole thing who's running this event yeah. who's great yowza 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly and throughout the crowd there's a like because you're following a bunch of different couples here uh, including you've got Red Buttons playing like an older but very likable sail- middle-aged sailor guy uh, Susanna York and Robert Fields who are uh, aspiring actors who come there all dressed to the nines not realizing that you know before we're even close to the halfway point of the movie they look like they just slept in the in their clothes. You know, they're a mess. Uh, Bruce Dern and a very young Bonnie Bedelia playing his pregnant wife, which who the fuck would... That's one of the things you're like, you're letting your pregnant wife do this? Yeah. It's, it's, there are moments of, like, just pure horror in this oh, film. Yeah. I mean, some of it involves her. Uh, yeah, it, and, and it's funny. I just watched Salem's Lot, which she's in as well, and mm-hmm. I had no context of her career as an actress before Die Hard. Yeah, me neither. Uh, and so seeing her in this, I was like, I had no idea she was making movies in the 60s. I completely, I was shocked. I was like, wait a minute, I had to go on Wikipedia, how old is she? <laughs> like, wow. Um, this is intense and dark, amazingly well acted across the board. One of those ones that will really make you, you'll have to stop it and get on Wikipedia just to read about the real story of these things because it's just, it just gets more shocking the longer it goes on. And you, you wouldn't believe a movie that's just taking place at a dance marathon would be as gripping as this thing actually yeah. is. Yeah, because it's not, I, what I expected reading the plot was something akin to like Hands on a Hard Body, mm-hmm. where I thought it would be a little bit more like a sports movie. Yeah. And I would kind of get invested in the story and who was going to win and that sort of thing. It's not that. It's no. about the mental breakdown of these people over the course of this event as their bodies are being manipulated for entertainment by this almost Vince McMahon-esque 
you know, almost like a carnival barker. But what a boy! And, and I actually found a lot of. I, I think it's an important film. I don't know if you have any pro wrestlers in your audience. <laughs> I think it's an important film for anyone who uses their body for entertainment, mm-hmm. whether it's dance or pro wrestling or anything like that. Where I feel, I felt, I felt strongly like there were parallels to the world of pro wrestling, where it is such a grind and it is such a physical toll, and the person who's booking you and telling you to go out there and do these things gets to sleep pain-free, yeah. you know? Um, and I, I I thought, as a WWE fan, <laughs> there were a lot of parallels in in that sort of life and what was being presented on the screen. Uh, it's it's tough. It's a tough movie to watch. It's, it's really, really good. And it's, again, it wasn't long before I realized, oh, this is not going to be a sports movie about dancing. No. This is going to be something else entirely. This is not strictly ballroom either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, is, yeah this is an... Uh a very dark tale of what people will do in times of desperate need, both in terms of the desperate and those taking advantage of the desperate. You mentioned the Derby. They use it to kind of like burn off people. So, so if you're at the end, I think the last three people or something like that are cut. Yeah. Uh, and so they'll call Derby. They'll make everybody run around the dance floor in a circle as hard and as fast as they can until the time is up. One of the things that this movie does in that scene that I don't, I, I'm having trouble thinking of something that predates this, and you see it in movies all the time now. It's almost a visual cliche, which is some action is going on, and then it ramps to slow motion. Mm-hmm. It's silent, and then a completely different piece of music begins to play. Right, and I'm like, you see that all the time in movies and TV now, and I couldn't think of anything before this, and I was like, that may be the first instance of that, where you see people running, they're running, they're running, and then all of a sudden. They're running in slow mo. It's pin drop quiet, yeah, and then a song begins. Uh, I hadn't thought about that, but I was like, that this, could, I was like, this may be the first instance the of progenitor that of that yeah. cliche. Well, this was uh, deeply appreciated in its time. It's odd that it hasn't been. It didn't stay one of those songs that people talk about as much, whereas it really should be. And I, I genuinely hope this movie is getting rediscovered now. I mean, Gig Young won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his performance. Uh, Fonda and York were nominated for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress for this thing. Um, There's a, and we'll get more on this in a second, there's an odd sort of kind of narrator thing that goes on throughout this that it starts with from the character Robert's point of view where you're like he's in well I mean they tell you right from the beginning he's in jail I want to talk about I want to get into spoilers regarding that right and I'm going to say we're going to talk about spoilers in just a second (laughs) but first just to mention the bonus features here and this is so you guys can finish if you don't want to know the spoilers, you can stop right after the bonus features. There's a commentary with Sidney Pollock, who I will say this movie's incredibly atypical for Sidney Pollock. He never made anything else like this. And I would argue it's probably his strongest film. Heroin. Um, another commentary with producers Erwin Winkler and Martin Baum. Uh, for some reason, the hairstylist. And uh, Jane Fonda, Bonnie Bedelia, Michael Sarazen, and Red Buttons. It is. Uh, I listened to commentary, too, and just so people know... It's one of those commentaries where it's interviews edited together. Mm. So a lot of times they aren't even talking about the specifics of what you're seeing on the screen. They're they're just talking. Okay. Fair so. enough. Uh, and then there's a uh, six and a half minute, basically old school EPK called The Moon Makers, which is from the original making of, of the, from the movie's theatrical release, which gives you some, some picture of the background. I imagine this is probably all the footage that exists from behind the scenes of yeah. this movie. So, I, I mean... It's a. Uh, I, I want to say this is Kino who put this out. Yeah, it is. And they rarely put an, almost any bonus features at all on these re-releases, so it was kind of nice they actually did something. Although this is a movie, kind of shot Criterion didn't pick this one up. Yeah, and the picture is okay. I've seen yeah. better Kino re-releases in regards to cleaning it up. It it's a little. Uh, the, it's a little muddy. Everything's sort of brown and gray. It's mm. not like really strong. We I, we haven't really talked about the AV of stuff. There's not really like the strong black blacks and things like that. Now we're looking at some photos of it right now that actually look to me better than the image from the film. Even though these are these are screenshots, but it's very it's very brown, kind of low contrast movie. Yeah, uh, it's not it's, as vibrant as it feels like it should. Yeah, and it 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 is so good it deserved a cleanup it deserved uh like a, a nice a nice scrubbing and and some kind of restoration on it. it it's 
really, it's really, really good. It really is. I couldn't recommend this more highly to pretty much every, everybody. Uh, all right. So that ends the show formal. And now you guys don't want to know the spoiler. You go ahead and get out now. Are you gone? Okay. John, go. So the way that the movie's structured is you see him at the beach. You see Robert at the beach. He's sort of wandering around. He kind of comes in. He looks like a drifter. He's watching the people sign up for the dance contest from afar. And you start to get the fla- these flashes. Now, what I wanted to find out from you is I assumed the entire time that they were flashbacks because of the way that he's introduced. And I thought it was so freaking smart that they almost tricked me into believing that they were flashbacks because mm-hmm. even because you assume, okay, all this stuff is going to come out in the wash. Some, sometime amongst this whole night of them that will dancing, pertinent. you're going to discover that he killed somebody. Because we've been learning things about everybody else the whole time yeah. and learning about their background, so it seems only appropriate with this guy we really know almost nothing about, that that's, that, that's his so thing. So did you assume they were flashbacks as well? I did. Okay. I just, I didn't know if I was crazy and dumb and was like, no, they were clearly flash-forwards. <laughs> but, uh, but that, and that, so I wanted to ask you that, because I... I once that became clear, I was just like, they didn't, they didn't lie to me. The filmmakers didn't lie to me, which is no. always great when you watch a twist. Yeah. The filmmakers didn't lie. I just made assumptions based on the way that movies are made. I think about halfway through it, I started questioning whether it was before or after. But then I was like, well, wait, if it's after, I mean, there is a fucking dance contest. Why yeah. would he be in jail? Yeah. You know, and when you find out, you're like, oh, fuck. Well, they're going <laughs> to tip their hand because he, he wears the shirt of the person who ends up being the sponsor. But even that, I was like... It's going to pay off in some way. Like, mm-hmm. because you assume her showing up and sponsoring him was some tie to what you were already seeing anyways. Right. And so, and so even then it quote unquote tricked me. Uh, I, I just thought that was so masterfully done because I, the movie was ahead of me. I was not ahead of the movie. Agreed. Uh, All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of Digital Noise. Uh, John, you want to tell people where they can find you again? You can find me at Golson, G-H-O-L-S-O-N. I uh, I write for movies.com, but uh, rather sporadically, I cover the Marvel stuff over there. Okay, cool. And uh, I will be back. Uh, actually, we should have, I believe there will actually be two Digital Noise. This is going to be out. I'm going to put this out on Monday, and there will probably be another one coming out either Tuesday or Wednesday with Joe. But after that, it's going to be a good over a week before you'll get one because I'm going to be at Fantastic Fest and that's just going to be that'll be all I'll be doing basically during that time but thank you so much for listening and uh, let us know if you have any comments or thoughts we always want to hear your point of view on things and to tell me when I'm totally full shit because I often am oneofus.net has been your one stop shop for all things geek for years but there's a side to them many of you have never heard the subscription side. Subscribe and listen to great podcasts like The Breakfast Pub, The Original Gentleman, and the Watch a Movie With Us series. Head on over to oneofus.net and don't forget your towel.